Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to what I guess is like part three of the, I think it's going to be Eastern Conference Finals MVPs part one, but it is a continuation of the series we've been flying toward hurling ourselves into outer space on. Uh, That is going back and filling in the official unofficial conference finals MVP ballots because you know Cody they've only had the Magic Johnson and Larry Bird trophy for one year 2022 so we thought somebody needs to go back and fill in history and you know we've started with the 21st century 2000 to 2021 we've done the Western Conference finals we're all we've handed out all our Magic Johnsons how do you feel about the Magic Johnsons we handed out I felt really good about that. I think there was a period where I'm like, I I can pay a little less attention to these, but for the rest of those, it was actually a really fun trip down memory lane. Well, doing the East made me realize the West had some fantastic series (laughs) that possibly we took for granted over the years because the East has some... Uh, it has some bumpy. We'll, we'll see how we we'll see how we do going through the East here today. We're going to go back in time, uh, all the way to the beginning of the 21st century, or you know, technically 2000, whatever it is. Um, and we will make our way through. We'll get as far as we can. If we need to do a part two again, we'll do that. If you want to revisit the criteria and the way we're thinking about it, go back to that first podcast, Western Conference Finals MVPs. But today it's all about the East. And Cody, you are geared up. You've got you've got your Milwaukee Bucks kit, as the kids like to say. Um, if you're watching, Cody is flashing his 2021 Milwaukee Bucks Eastern. Is it an NBA champion or Eastern Conference champion? Oh, it's an NBA champion. NBA Champs champion. Crossing. Well, shirt. we don't care about that stuff. We're, we're talking about conference <laughs> finals here. We don't care about the finals. It's already been taken care of. So, I mean, Cody, we should start with the year 2000, but I think because you're wearing Bucks paraphernalia and, and, and you're all juiced up, um, the, the, the Wisconsin is just coming off, like emanating off you right now through the screen. I think we should just go to 2001 because your Milwaukee Bucks were in the Eastern Conference Finals in a kind of a classic seven-game series in 2001 versus Allen Iverson, uh, Eric Snow, Aaron McKee, and the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, let's just jump right into that series. I love that. I think we have to start with energy, and then we'll see how far this one series can carry us. So we'll just do this series for one hour. Uh, I if, love you're, it. if you're not familiar with this series... The 76ers were able to pull it out in seven, win uh, a relatively weak East at the time, get to the finals, play the undefeated in the playoffs. Lakers, Allen Iverson hits the shot over to Ron Liu, gets moved up 931 spots on the average top 100 list from fans around the world because Philadelphia won one basketball game. Um, but this was this was the more fun series to me. This was a back-and-forth shootout even though the average score was 90 to 90 Um, both teams scored almost the exact same points Philadelphia pulled away in game seven but some of the prior games were wild game five went down to the wire game six is one of my favorite random blowout NBA games ever the Bucks had like a 25 or 30 point lead and then Iverson you just rewatched this game I didn't Iverson have like 26 points in a quarter or something to get them back into it Uh, Ray Allen went bonkers how how are you feeling watching this 
that was a really weird game because that's actually where I started the series rewatching it. And as I was going through it, I'm like, man, this Iverson fella really just doesn't look that good. Like, this is a pretty pathetic game. Um, I think there's a stat at some point in there that he had missed 17 straight threes between yep. game one to game six. And then the fourth quarter comes and Larry Brown's like, sure, Iverson, go back in there, see what happens. And he rips off like 27 points or something like that. And it actually gets, I don't remember what it gets up to, but it's like a, a single digit game yeah, at one six. point. Yeah, it gets it to like six or eight from like 30 in this insane flurry. So to put some numbers on this, uh, just focusing on this wild game, he was five for 16 in the first half, minus 29 when he was out on the floor because it was 60 to 31 at halftime for the Bucks. Meanwhile, Ray Allen hit six threes in the first half. He's got 25 points going into the locker room. And in the second half, what you're alluding to for Iverson, Iverson scores 33 in the second half. Um, on 9 for 17 shooting at a huge flurry. Bucks come back, but they can't make it all the way back. They, they drop a 46-point fourth quarter, which in 2001 is kind of like scoring 63 points in a corner in 2022. Anyway, this was like a dead-even series. Um, Ray Allen went bonkers in this series. Do we, do we have Ray Allen series stats for this series? Because they were very impressive. Iverson averaged 31 points per game in the series but 44 percent true shooting for, for that's don't adjust your radio 44 <laughs> percent ray allen meanwhile 27 points a game in this series on 61 percent true shooting and again this was a, a more defensively oriented not only time but series philadelphia was a, a defensively sort of oriented team i, I mentioned aaron mckee Dikembe mutombo anchored the defense D- tyrone hill another big played a lot of minutes um Raja bell, a, a young Raja bell even made an appearance that was fun to see so with all that said um cody i felt good about my pick here I'm going with the scoring machine, the off-ball movement. Uh, the average five and a half assists in this series. He was getting, you know, coming off curls and hitting passes. I'm going with Ray Allen as the 2001 Eastern Conference Finals MVP. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the right move here. I think Iverson in like bursts. If you watch like, if I were to give you like five minute certain clips of some of these games, you'd be like, "This is nuts!" Like Allen Iverson's literally the best player that's ever played a game of basketball. In fact, he might be the best pull up three point shooter that's ever played because he goes on these runs where it's just like it doesn't matter who's guarding him, he's gonna hit it. But then, like I said, the aforementioned like those first few games, he was he was all kinds of off, and I think he even sat out game what was a game three that he sat out and the Sixers still only lost by six I believe in that game um it was a really weird series for Iverson like you said the almost almost negative 10 efficiency that he was scoring whereas Ray Allen was significantly more efficient and I know that people talk about the Sixers team as being completely bereft of offensive talent I thought McKee was actually pretty solid I thought he he did a pretty good job next to him, not obviously scoring at the same volume, but uh, between him and then Matumbo kind of like shutting down the paint in the way that he could. I don't know. I just thought what Ray Allen brought to the table was more consistent and more important to what the team was doing. Let's go to the Discord vote and and see what they said here. So we got 24 ballots coming in. The East was harder than the West. We had more people voting on the West because I think those series were more memorable. But in in the thinking basketball Discord with 13 votes to 11. Maybe our closest vote ever. Almost a tie. We almost had a tie. 13 votes to 11. That's foreshadowing, by the way. Um, Allen Iverson 
2001 Conference Finals MVP over Ray Allen. And uh, I didn't have a very hard time with this one, Cody. I'm a, I'm a little surprised by that result. I think we know in real life, if voters continue the precedent of only voting for winner winning players in the series, it's going to be Allen Iverson from Philadelphia. Uh, but I thought Allen was just, I just thought he was the best player in the series, basically. I, I just think that there's this continuing idea that the 76ers were so bad offensively that like Iverson had to be a hero. Like it was necessary for him to go out there and miss all those times because there was going to be no other creation that was happening. And I have to admit, I was very impressed with his ability to go like blow by people. His first step was just incredible. And I think when he was in like setting up his teammates mode, he looked really solid. But a lot of the shots, man, like... I, I just feel like he was killing them at some time at times when he was just like in in hero shooting mode. I don't know if that's how you felt about it, but that's I think that's where people are coming from. I think he I think in general he loses value with the combination of his shot selection that that hero sort of um, style that you were referring to. And I've said this before. I'll come back to it again when I do more work on AI in the future. Just it's a limiting factor to a degree when your outside shooting isn't as accurate as warrants taking that many outside shots and it's not that he was a bad outside shooter it's just that when you're average or below average and you're taking a ton of of sort of long shots he played way more off ball especially with Larry Brown than I think people realize and that's nice offense you know he's coming off there's there's a really popular screen action named after him where he comes off two screens at the top of the key Uh, he would come off baseline stuff and he's hitting those shots but compare it just to the guy on the other side of the court, like Ray Allen makes those shots 48, 52% of the time. He makes his threes 38 to 42% of the time, whatever it is. And Iverson's in like the low thirties or low forties on the same kind of shots uh, throughout sort of the meat of his career. So that to me is a limiting factor with that style because the other stuff is great. Um, the, the playmaking and what he carried to your point about the offense, Aaron McKee is an underrated offensive player, but they obviously don't have a lot of offensive juice, but there's still some pull, I think, even once you say, hey, Philadelphia was a defensive team and their offense wasn't very good. And the the reaction is like, I think, justifiably so. Well, Iverson was good enough that he was able to keep them afloat on offense. And that's true, but I do think there's levels to, um, you know, Kobe Bryant, four-time Western Conference Finals MVP, and someone who's a little more inefficient or something like that, like AI and 43% true shooting in this series there. Plus he missed a game in the series as well. So maybe people um, forgot that he missed that game. I don't know. This was a really fun one to start with. We thought we'd go here for Cody and your Bucks fandom, but we have to go back uh, and, and do the year 2000. We have to wait one second here, Ben, just one quick second, because I want to get you on the record here, because first of all, bless his heart, Bill Walton calling playoff games, just incredible stuff. I just love it. But he he stated, well, he, they were they were talking about the fact that Ray Allen and George Carl were were saying that the NBA was rigging it to help the 76ers make the finals. And Walton was dismayed that Allen was making these comments. He was dismayed, Ben. So what do you think about this conversation? How Do you think that it was officiated in a way that skewed in Philadelphia's favor that much? Is that what they still talk about in Milwaukee to this day? The the robbery? It's like, it's like the Bucks and then a level below that, the 2002 Sacramento Kings. I think, here's the thing though, Ben. To, to, I'll get I'll get myself on record on here. I I didn't I didn't quite see that. 
I don't necessarily know if it was necessary to make those kinds of comments. And if anything, I thought Iverson took quite a few shots that weren't called throughout the series. Um, I don't I don't think this was rigged at all. I think the Bucks squandered away some really, really opportune moments for them to close the series. Well, so. I'm glad I'm glad I'm glad you got that off your chest. That actually I think that was worth it. Um now let's go back to to the year before the the series we skipped the the incredibly scintillating matchup the rematch between the Indiana Pacers and the New York Knicks this was the Pacers fifth Eastern Conference Finals I believe off the top of my head in like seven years uh, at the end of the run there uh, the second straight in a row against the Knicks the Knicks in '99 that weird lockout '99 season beat them in an upset in the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, But this time, the Pacers enact the revenge, taking them out in six games. uh, This series wasn't as close. The the Pacers um, had a plus six point differential in this series. They had a 110 offensive rating to the Knicks 103 offensive rating. But man, it was still that like grindy dead ball basketball era uh, the Knicks did not have a 20-point score in the series. The Pacers' leading scorer was Reggie Miller at 22 points a game in the series. He clocked in at 56% true shooting. Um, of the Knicks' leading scorers, Latrell Sprewell was 49% true shooting. Allen Houston was 54% true shooting. Boy, between between Allen Houston and Reggie Miller and even Latrell Sprewell, there was a lot of floppy and running around off ball in this series. Um Pacers take it home in six. For me, Cody, this was uh, a Reggie Miller series. It was a Reggie Miller series, but also mostly because no one else really stood out to a high yeah. degree. Like, I think yep. Patrick Ewing uh, struggling with injuries. He had to go out a couple games. I think he missed a, at least a game. Two, two games, in there. Yeah. yeah. he missed two games in there. He left a game early, so Ewing was kind of struck out of there. But no one else was, like, dominating the game in multiple different ways. Unless you're, like, on the Austin Crozier train. And like you're really about the game one where he outscores the Knicks bench twenty two ten. That those, some of those Pacers lines were really fun. Like when you had when you had him out there with with Sam Perkins, uh, Reggie Miller. It's a lot of space ball that the the Pacers were working with. So that was really fun. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out though because the the ironic part about this is I'm I'm voting Miller. It would be his you know first uh, conference finals MVP that we give out in real life. He probably would have won conference finals MVP because of the the winning bias that the voters have. But it was not his best conference finals performance. I'm not even sure it was his second or third best conference finals performance. Certainly against the Knicks, he had better series in the in the middle of the decade, and then I think against the Magic in '95. Um, he had a much more like Reggie Miller is doing Reggie Miller things series. So yeah, kind of an uninspiring series. That's why we skipped it. I'm voting <laughs> Reggie Miller. Are you okay with that? I think that's great. Okay, if we go to the Discord, oh my god, I can't. I cannot believe this. I can't believe this. We we go through 21 series in the West, and a couple of them somehow escaped without a unanimous pick in the discord maybe it's because we didn't have quite as many voters this time but all 24 of our voters selected reggie miller as the eastern conference finals mvp in 2000 so like steph curry scoring 32 on plus 24 isn't good enough but a subpar reggie miller eastern conference finals that's what's gonna do it that's what's gonna do for you discord come on yep 37 points per game 
from Steph Curry in 2019 was not Kobe Bryant sweeping every like major statistical category we've used in our, our leaderboard that we've, we we haven't even referenced our leaderboard yet. The, the, this uh, this Milwaukee Bucks thing, this has just been so spicy to start with. We should point out um, in that 2001 series, since it was a split vote and it went to Iverson, Ray Allen did lead the series in um, our model, the back picks box plus minus model. He led the series in the basketball reference model. He led them by a mile, like an absolute mile. Um, his augmented plus minus, which takes into account uh, box score data and the sort of on-off data. Um, he was also ahead of Iverson in that. Interestingly enough, Irvin Johnson led the series in augmented plus minus. Um, so, and by the way, back to your Bucks thing, the player in the series, the series was so close, the player in the series with the starter, I should say, the heavy minute player with the greatest point differential in the series wasn't a 76er, it was a buck. It was Irvin Johnson at plus eight in that series. Um, I love that between these two like conferences, we've now talked about Irvin Johnson twice. Cause he, he comes up, I think in the, in the Kevin Garnett, 2004. Yeah. yeah. So shout out Irvin, not magic Johnson. Yeah. There's a lot of magic Johnson and there's, there's Irvin, not magic. Johnson. <laughs> uh, how was that? Not his official nickname when he was playing, not magic. Would um, that have been me? Would he have not liked that? I think that would have been a great nickname. He probably wouldn't have liked that. No. Yeah. But it's, it's an honorific kind of um, nickname. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. 2002, the the Nets uh, against my Celtics, 2002. I remember having to drive places and watch these games with other people, which was, which was a frenetic experience. Game four of this series, of course, the Nets were up 2-1. Both these teams were kind of upstart they they Jason Kidd was in his first year in New Jersey and the Celtics had just been coming off of years of um, kind of decrepit performances where they didn't make the playoffs they were back in the playoffs the Nets were back in the playoffs both of them made the conference finals the Celtics upset the Pistons in the round before it was 2-1 New Jersey game four they had what a 21 point lead in the fourth quarter Antoine Walker starts yelling at everybody on the sidelines. Paul Pierce comes out in the fourth quarter, and he's just a steamroller. He cannot be stopped going to the basket. Young Paul Pierce, by the way, um, incredibly underrated at getting to the rim. Like, first step, broad shoulders. He was just a kamikaze sort of penetrator at times. That feels like it could be a good t-shirt, kamikaze penetrator. Uh, (laughs) So... The Celtics come back. They tie the series at, at two. Maybe that's game three. Sorry. Game three is the one with the big comeback. They take a 2-1 lead. Nets win game four. And then I thought New, Jer- New Jersey was just too much after that. Kenyon Martin was athletically a little too much, although he did more in the next year um, in this series, specifically against the Celtics, as, as Martin sort of emerged as a player. And Jason Kidd, his ability to completely dominate Kenny Anderson on both sides of the court, to be a pest on the glass, out in transition, disruptive at the nail. It proved to be too much. Nets win in six. 
um, before we get to some voting and numbers, you rewatch some of this. Any any other thoughts? No, I really like the Paul Pierce shout out because I think the thing that really stands out is when you think of Paul Pierce, I think what most people think about is like the methodical get within the mid range, hit that sort of thing. That really wasn't Paul Pierce's game. And if you go back, like you said, I think it was the game three when they outscored them 41 to 16 in the fourth quarter, another 40 point, another 40 point quarter in the early 2000s. That's incredible. Uh, He doesn't like catch fire from mid range. He has like this kind of spin move where he's getting to the rim. He's breaking people down off the dribble. It's it's really impressive to see young young Paul Pierce do that. But yeah, Jason Kidd too, I think that's the thing that stands out the most is just how incredibly frenetic and dominant he is defensively. He is jumping passing lanes. He's shutting down at the point of attack. He's just a broad point guard that's able to just like kind of go all over the place on defense and be a, a, a pest in that way. And I uh, think Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Now, I was going to say, the final thing I was going to say, too, about the series is that there were nine players that scored over 10 points per game, and only four of them score uh, shot over 50% true shooting. So this was not an offensively slanted series. That is literally what I was about to say. Um, despite uh, the offensive ratings were terrible, 102 to 99 for the Nets, relatively close series in point differential. A lot of the games were competitive, even those final few games that the Nets won. The Nets won game five by 11. They won game six by eight. Game four was another super close game in Boston with a similar dynamic to game three. Paul Pierce misses a free throw at the end of the game that I want to say would have put it into overtime. Um, Yeah, I think it would have tied the game and would have possibly sent it into overtime. So it was still a close series, but it's a weird series in that they maybe because of kid, because of the way the Celtics played, you still had pace um, but so you didn't have these terribly low scoring games, but the efficiencies, Cody, were, I mean, Pierce led this, led the series in scoring at 24 points a game, 49% true shooting. <laughs> Antoine Walker was second in the series, 23 points per game, 47% true shooting. Kenny Anderson was third for the Celtics, 44% true shooting. Oh, you think the Nets are better? Jason Kidd led the Nets in scoring at 18 points a game. 49.5% true shooting. Kenyon Martin, he comes in at 14 points a game, 43% true shooting. Stand back, folks. Kerry Kittles, the Villanova one-sock slinger. Kerry Kittles, he averages 15 points a game on 51.5% true shooting. That man is an absolute flamethrower. Um, but with, with Kittles, too, what's really interesting is, is shades of Iverson from the previous uh, season. At one point, Kittles goes 0 for 14 from 3 across a couple of games. So after shooting 40% from 3 on the season, he misses 14 straight threes during the series. Kid does average a triple-double. 18 points, 11 rebounds, 10 assists. If we go to our metrics that we use, Kid leads the series in box plus minus, both our version and basketball reference. Neither particularly strong. They're sort of on the bottom end of conference finals leaders actually only a few conference finals leaders of all the series we've talked about and will talk about that had a lower uh leader in box plus minus so it's not a highly inspirational series but kid does leave the series as a playmaker he leads in playmaking value he is first in augmented plus minus i think he was the best player in the series and as a result of that i'm going jason kid 2002 eastern conference finals mvp I think that's the right choice because in a in a series that's struggling with offense, I do think that his his passing and creation for his teammates did help elevate his offensive impact more than anyone else. The Discord agrees nearly a unanimous, not 
Paul Pierce did pick up a couple of votes, but nearly unanimous uh, award vote uh, result, excuse me, going to Jason Kidd. Shall we move on to 2003? Let's do it. Okay. 2003. This is the Nets coming back once again. And this time, uh, a new foe standing in their way, Cody, the Detroit Pistons. Um, I, I rewatched a little of this series for this podcast episode, it is uh, it, it is it is not great basketball. <laughs> You're going to need to carry this section, Ben, because I'm going through every every series at the moment. This is the only series I don't have a single thing. I don't have a single thing written down for this series, Ben. What can can you tell me about it a little bit? Yeah, um, the Nets were much better than the Pistons. The Pistons, <laughs> the Pistons. This is it. That's it. No, no, because, you know, they were plus nine in the series. Um, They swept the series in four games. Uh, The first two games were... So so I think the thing I should get out of the way about Detroit is this is um, pre-Rasheed Wallace Detroit. Rasheed Wallace comes at the end of the next season. This is a young Rick Carlisle coaching Detroit. This is not Larry Brown Detroit. Chauncey Billups had arrived in Detroit, but he was still, this wasn't prime or peak really Chauncey Billups yet. So with the Pistons, what you had was Corliss Williamson playing big minutes. You had Mehmet Okur still there as sort of a stretch big off the bench. You had a very, very young Tayshaun Prince in the rotation by the time the playoffs rolled around. And you had um, Uncle Spliffy, Cliff Robinson, starting at center. And and so you just don't have nearly the same force, cohesiveness, uh, defensive, just absolute destruction that they would wreck on the league the year before. And they were competitive in the first two games at home. These were close games. Uh, Jason Kidd, I can't remember if it was game one or game two, hit a jumper with one second left on, on the far side corner um, to take one of the games in Detroit. I think both of the games, I want to say, the Pistons had second-half leads off the top of my head, and the Nets just were kind of too much. And then once the series went back to New Jersey with home court, uh, that they they were they were too good. And again, I, I tried to rewatch a lot of this series for this. Five minutes right into game one, the first thing that jumps out, Jason Kidd is pushing the pace, multiple great passes in transition for scores. Then everywhere on defense, he gets a steal that leads to a run out. He gets a defensive rebound that leads to a run out. Detroit, this is game one, does go up by 10 with a big run in the third. And then Kidd just dominates this 12-0 run to start the fourth quarter. Sick passes coming out of his ears, you know, grabbing every rebound, pushing it, getting to the rim. Kenyon Martin does do some nice things. Uh, and he does have a decent scoring series, but I think a lot of that was from being set up by Kidd. We don't want to spend too much time on this one. I think this is Jason Kidd in a landslide 2003 Eastern Conference Finals MVP. And I think you hit on something I think that's really important to understand about Jason Kidd's offensive game is that even though he doesn't necessarily like have a very strong half-court offensive ability, like he's not going to buoy an offense with his scoring, if you're able to still take your take your abilities that you have and push it in transition and get layups and open shots and like that, that's getting efficient basketball for your team, especially in some of these slogs. So I think that's where he's able to get a lot of his offensive value. Pretty much probably the majority of his offensive value is setting up his teammates, especially in tra- transition, for high leverage scores. All right. Uh, the Discord agrees. They... They, this was not unanimous. Uh, Kenyon Martin did get two votes. Ben Wallace picked up a couple votes for the swept 
Detroit Pistons. Hmm. Um, but we've got a juicy series on the horizon, oh, yeah. Cody. A, a landmark series in the history of the NBA. The 2004 Pistons and Pacers. If you go to YouTube and you search 2004 Pistons Pacers, you just get a bunch of Malice at the Palace videos because it happened, what, five five or six months later uh, in the same calendar year, the next year. But this series, of course, charged the sort of lit the fuse, right? It greased the rails for that Palace at the Malice, uh, Malice at the Palace. <laughs> well, we haven't even been, we were only five years in and I'm already confusing things. And additionally, I think the real reason this was so historic is it was the pinnacle of this dead ball era to me. The officiating in this series was, I, I don't know if I've ever seen more physical basketball. And in every dimension of the game, on the perimeter, on the post, off the ball, on the ball, loose ball, rebound, it, it was an absolute slog. The broadcasters were commenting it, commenting on it at the time, how physical the series was. Uh, if you If you look at the average score of this series Cody I hope you're sitting down it was 75 to 73 good lord <laughs> the Pistons outscored the Pacers uh, by two points the offensive ratings in the series again please brace yourself Detroit's offensive rating a whopping 91 the Pacers an 87.8 offensive rating that's that's unbelievable if, if any of you out there is feeling like going back and watching this at least do game six when the score ended with wait for this 69 to 65 to close out the series 69 69 very nice score um <laughs> 20 24 points per game from richard hamilton he led the pistons the Pacers, Cody, had two dudes in double figures in the whole series, and you might be thinking, well, that's fine. Kobe and Shaq an average 30. No, no, no. Jermaine O'Neal averaged 17 points a game, and uh, Ron Artest, the artist now known, the, art, the Artest now known <laughs> as Meta World Peace, averaged 15 points a game. What is going on in this series? I have to confess, I rewatched most of it. It's... it's uh, Oh, it, it, it was, it was a lot. Um, no one had good offensive numbers. So all the box numbers and all the all in ones are, are suppressed because of that. No one looks very good in that sense. It kind of felt like Rip Hamilton series to me at the time he led, uh, the basketball reference box plus minus model at plus six. Again, not a great number. Ben Wallace led my number, uh, my model at at plus five, Ben Wallace also led in augmented plus minus. Um, I went back and forth, Cody, between Ben Wallace and Rip in this series. Rip providing the offensive juice. He was the only Piston player in the series to shoot above 50% on true shooting. He shot 55%. Incidentally, watching them run around and chase each other and battle and literally the Spider-Man meme pointing at each other was invented for this series. Reggie Miller was the only Indiana Pacer above 51% true shooting, even at his old advanced age, 54%. These guys just went back and forth with each other. Um, on the other hand, the Pistons were a defensively oriented team. It was their identity. Ben Wallace, in this series specifically, I thought changed everything defensively. And yes, there is the combination with Rashid, the two of them having this interactive effect. Um, but Wallace was such a force behind the pick and roll 
in this series or Jermaine O'Neal's post-ups were a huge part of the Pacers offense that season and he did a great job in single coverage in those situations or coming over in these rugged plays in the paint and blocking shots off the weak side. Um, I watched a lot of the series. I thought about this. I went and checked the on-off. The Pistons were plus 11 per 100 in this series with Ben Wallace on the court. They were minus 28 without him in the limited minutes that he sat. No other Piston beside Rip Hamilton was really good. Billups was plus two. Sheed was plus two. Prince was plus two. Rip Hamilton was plus nine. So with Wallace, Wallace in, in uh, it, I mean, he had huge games. He had a 17.16 rebound, three block game three. But then in game five, Rip comes back and goes for 33 points. Rip somehow played 43 minutes a game to Ben Wallace's 40 points a game. In game two down the stretch, he had huge, a huge eight-point run to, to spring that victory. That's the famous game where Tayshaun Prince uh, blocks the shot from behind on Reggie Miller in the, in the waning seconds. So I went back and forth. I could see this going either way. I think a little too much points in the direction of Rip's offense being key. I went Rip Hamilton, 2004 Eastern Conference Finals MVP. You made me nervous on this because I was waffling between them for a while, too. And you, you were talking like you were about to give it to Ben. But I was thinking about it in two different ways. Because on one hand, Rip Hamilton, to give a little bit more context, he was a plus four point... Uh, Plus 4.3 efficiency, No one, none of the other Pistons starters were above zero. They probably weren't even above, like, negative one. And so when you're the leading scorer with volume and you're the most efficient on a team that's really struggling to get points up in a series that's struggling to get points up, I think that's really valuable when it's skewing more defensively. So even though Ben Wallace was the linchpin defensively, and let me tell you, I thought... And I know there's a lot more to defense than just like one-on-one matchups. I thought he ate Jermaine O'Neal's lunch in this series. Just ate his lunch. The amount of turnovers he caused, the amount of just like pushing him out and forcing post-ups to start 16, 17 feet away. Uh, I thought it was a masterclass of shutting someone down one-on-one. Of course, like you said, all the other off-ball stuff from from Ben Wallace. But again, I think in a series that's so low scoring, to have that amount of scoring coming at an efficient level was a little too much for Ben Wallace to get the, the nod. The other thing for me was, and maybe this was sort of my tiebreaker, um, Rip had a good defensive series. You know, he's not in the same universe as peak Ben Wallace dominating a series like this defensively. But this wasn't like he had a negative, you know, he was out there doing nothing or had a poor defensive series. He also had moments where he's making defensive plays or kind of being a serious pain in the butt uh, with Reggie Miller out on the perimeter. So that made me go, that made me lean rip. If we check the discord, Cody. Oh, this is interesting. Hmm. This is interesting. Uh, Rip Hamilton got one-third of the votes. Ben Wallace is voted their 2004 Eastern Finals MVP with two-thirds wow. of the votes. So so it was close, but they, they went Ben Wallace, which I have to say, part of me likes to see because it's a series where I think... His defense was phenomenal. Um, he he had a huge impact on the series. If you're gonna give, uh, you know, if you're gonna give him one, this might be the series to do it. And eight ends up with eight points, sixteen boards a game on uh, 
what was his true shooting? 42% true shooting. So there's a theme. If you're in the low 40s in true shooting, you have a good shot of winning an early 2000s Eastern Conference <laughs> Finals MVP, according to our Discord voters. But yeah, I think looking at where the Discord disagreed with you so far, I, I actually think that it's closer between Hamilton and Ben Wallace than it is Ray Allen and Allen Iverson. That's my take. I, it's cl- this series is closer. I think this series is closer to call. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. The The Bucks series felt a lot cleaner. I felt way more confident in that vote. This one, I understand. I understand the Wallace vote. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 2005. Now we have some new blood coming in. The Pistons are back. The Pistons are the defending NBA champions. Forget Eastern Conference champions. They won the whole kit and caboodle uh, the year before. But this time they're going up against our old friend Shaquille O'Neal, who is now transplanted to the Eastern Conference. Dwayne Wade, the second year phenom, who just, oh my God, you want to talk about first steps and mid-range shots and athletic defensive plays just just an incredible force that we 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 need to reset the context for those who didn't watch or or weren't paying attention during this season weren't watching basketball this was seen as Shaq's team and it sort of led the Shaq for MVP I believe he finished second to Steve Nash it led that sort of parade because the Heat were resurrected they went from like a first round playoff team to the top of the East and Wade was kind of seen as the new, ah, oh, it's another young guy. It might be Penny Hardaway. It took a while, Cody, I think, for people to realize, maybe even until 2006, for a lot of people to realize, like, this was Wade's team. Wade was the guy. They were closer in 2005 in terms of overall impact as players. But even when you watch this series, um, Wade is the one that stands out to me more. And all of this is to set up a really important thing that happened which is the series is tied at two. We have game five in Miami. The Heat go up three to two. And again, this is a surprise. Um, I think if we look at the series odds, yeah, the Heat were, it was almost a coin flip. So maybe surprise is too strong of a word, but it was looked at as almost a coin flip. The Heat come home, they win game five by 12. In that game, Dwayne Wade, another fantastic game in this series, um, gets injured, right? He, I think he hurt like his his rib or his back, something kind of something on the backside. There was a problem with his back, and he leaves the game. He's plus twenty four in the game when he leaves. Miami's able to hold on. The game, um, the two games prior to that in the series that Miami won, game three 
Wade has 36 points on 62%. True shooting gets 18 free throws in that game because his first step is just absolutely ridiculous. The game before the Heat win by six, Wade has 40 in that game. 40 in that game, 10 more free throws, 62% true shooting. So Miami's up 3-2. Wade cannot play in game six. He's out for game six. And the Pistons obliterate the Heat. And then there's this question of whether he's going to be able to come back. When I say obliterate, I mean they won the game by, by 25. Miami scores 66 points in the game. There's this question of whether he's going to be able to come back for game seven. He does come back for game seven. He's limited. His back is all stiff. And the first half, they're questioning whether he's passive or how he's feeling. Comes back, has a much better second half in a very, very close game. Uh, in the second half, he has 12 points. Shaq has 15 points in the second half. Detroit holds on at the very end. A couple Damon Jones misses and miscues that got a lot of press. Extremely, extremely close series. Pistons eke it out in seven. They did have a plus three and a half point point differential in the series. But again, how much of that was from the game that Wade missed? How much do you punish Wade for missing a game? He led everybody at 26 points per game. Um, still finished 52% true shooting in the series. That ca- that cratered sort of after the injury. <sighs> Rip Hamilton, 24 points per game for the Pistons. It's a lot to take in. It is a lot to take in. I think that Wade game is also bookended by a relatively, not even relatively, a pretty weak game one where he comes out and scores 16 points on 30% true shooting. So he starts the series pretty slow, really ramps up over those next couple of games, and then because of the injury, ends ends pretty slow. So the middle of the series is completely dominated by Dwayne Wade. And I, I would love to go back, and if we had like a list of the best first steps in history, I, I don't know if you could count on one hand more people above I mean, I don't know if you could fit on one hand uh, enough players that are ahead of Dwayne Wade because he's absolutely near the top of this list when it comes just exploding into the paint. And this is facing some really strong defensive players, not only like Ben, but Wallace and Rasheed Wallace, Tayshaun Prince, but Lindsey Hunter, Lindsey Hunter, who pops up in a bunch of these Eastern Conference final series, who, uh, you know, maybe one of the best point of attack defenders at the time. And, you know, Dwayne Wade is just just overpowering everyone getting in into the lane. So I think that value that he brought was really significant for the Heat. I I, I said he was transcendent in game two through four in my little notes here from, from rewatching. Um, this felt like less of a Ben Wallace series for the Pistons. Part of that might have been the success of Wade. I think some of that was the gravity of Shaq, uh, which is interesting because in 2004 in the finals, there were times where they're like, Ben, you just go play Shaq straight up and still do your thing. And I thought Wallace, as I talked about in my uh, NBA Finals MVP podcast, I thought he was great in that series, had a, had a really good argument for MVP of the series. But Hamilton, coming back to, to Rip, he plays 45 minutes a game in this series. I, I, did, I can't even wrap my head around that. He played 45 minutes a game in this series. Ben Wallace played 38. He averaged 24 points per game on 54% true shooting even though we're starting to see prime Chauncey Billups kind of emerge around this time, I think his peak is still to come. But this wasn't like a huge Chauncey series. Uh, 17 points, six assists, did not have a huge defensive presence in the games I saw. It, it, he just he just didn't pop the way he would in some other times. So I was really looking at Ben Wallace here. I was really looking at Richard Hamilton. I was really looking at Dwayne Wade. There are... From the from a offensive perspective, again coming back from to rip, 
he had gravity moments in this series. He had passing moments. This was maybe his best passing series of his career. He actually averaged six assists a game in this series. And depending on what game you catch on your rewatch, um, a number of really nice passes. So I went back and forth between Hamilton and Wade. And it kind of turned into a math equation for me. It's like (laughs) Dwayne Wade missing one game plus... Did he have the bad first game? How does this work? I actually got out the calculator and I was trying to figure out, is it better to have sort of six or seven solid games from Richard Hamilton or is it better to have four transcendent games from Dwayne Wade, a pretty good game, a not good game, and then game six, you just have to call like a replacement level. That's a, that's a, that's a terrible game, right? Because he doesn't play at all. Essentially, it's replacement level. Um, after many calculations, Cody, I actually think you're better off with the Dwayne Wade. I think you have a better probability of winning the series going with the Dwayne Wade route with higher highs and lower lows. Um, that was kind of counterintuitive to me, but I think that's my tiebreaker, and I'm going to go Dwayne Wade, 2005 Eastern Conference Finals MVP. I think that's acceptable, and I ended up leaning Wade as well in this series, so I'm glad to hear that we agreed on that. I didn't quite break out a calculator. like I didn't create uh, an algorithm to figure this out, but uh, I do think it's Wade here. And I think a big thing to talk about with Hamilton is you mentioned this before at the Reggie Miller uh, series, a couple, a couple series before this. But this isn't like 46 minutes of Hamilton standing in the corner. Like, Hamilton may have been the premier movement guy in the mid-2000s. I actually think that his the amount that he moved and the speed that he cut was actually even better than Ray Allen's. It's just he didn't stretch out to the three quite like that. He always liked to curl around and hit his mid-range jumpers. But this is like an all-time runner. And to see him playing this many minutes is, is really incredible and a testament to his his conditioning Um Calling back to your to your athleticism pod before his conditioning was off the charts. Well, Cody, I don't know what's going on here, but we have a tie. Oh, in, in the Discord, we have a tie. Uh, Dwayne Wade picks up four votes. The tie is between two Pistons. So I, I guess we're going to have to honor a co two thousand five Eastern Conference Finals MVP, <laughs> Richard Hamilton. And and this is the one that throws me a little bit. Rashid Wallace. Rashid Wallace. Rashid Wallace. Um, what's interesting is you get a little bit of the Wade thing. Rashid Wallace in game five of this series, I think, had two points. Two points, five fouls. Uh, in game seven, made a number of big shots, had 20 points, had a couple big plays. Maybe that's what people were remembering. Uh, I did not really consider... Rashid too heavily for this series. If we go to our statistical leaderboard in the series, Hamilton again led the series in both box plus minus models. He again, excuse me, for the first time um, led the conference finals in augmented plus minus. Rashid Rashid was the best scorer in the series in terms of scoring value. So maybe that's that's what threw people over the edge for him. Um, Wallace averaged fourteen and a half points per game in the series on 60% true shooting, not super inspiring numbers to me. But there you have it, a tie. I think we need to talk about a a fourth player here, Ben. And this is based off this man calling himself the most electrifying player in the NBA during the series. And that was Damon Jones, Ben. I already mentioned him. the The most electrifying player in the NBA in 2005, Damon Jones. Just leaving that there. Yeah. 
He was uh, he was a key feature in the Dwayne Wade Shaq reality TV show that that they had at the time when Shaq moved to South Beach. Let let's move on to 2006 so we can get off this South Beach craziness. Oh no, we're right back in South Beach in 2006. The 2006 Eastern Conference Finals is the rematch. S- sort of a rematch. There's a couple of key differences at this point. Would you like to share what they are? Well, I think the main thing is at this point going forward, I'm not I'm not messing this up. This is Larry Brown is left now and I think Flip Saunders is is coaching the Pistons. And this is going to be a, uh an important point coming up in another series, but after Flip Saunders takes over from the the all-time defensive coach Larry Brown, you actually see a shift. You see a shift in their offensive production. And I remember Flip Saunders actually like empowered Ben Wallace to to shoot more. You see Ben Wallace taking more mid like mid-range jumpers. And he's like I want Ben to get into the flow of things. And I don't know. I, I don't know what, if that philosophy is good, but their offenses looked pretty solid, but that's probably the key difference going into this series. You cannot let Larry Brown off the hook like that because there were games where he coached where they're running plays for Ben Wallace in the post. Um one of the hallmarks of that era by the way is just how many weak non-offensive players that are bigs get post-up possessions like it was a rite of passage like they like like by being on the court they earned the they earned the touches it, it didn't matter who it was Ben Wallace Jeff Foster Reggie Evans it doesn't matter who it is they're like we 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 got to get a post up for Jean Tabak right now <laughs> I think it's this idea of like, especially with like a defensive minded big like Ben, it's like, oh, we got to we got to give him something back. Yeah. 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 Pay him back Um, for all his defensive effort. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned the Flip Saunders shift in the defense because Dwayne Wade Mm. absolutely eviscerated this defense in this series. Twenty seven points per game on sixty eight percent true shooting the heat outscore the Pistons by over five points per game. They get that offensive rating juiced way up to 107, uh, which which compared to prior years was very good for them. And of course, Cody, we don't have to get stuck here. This was just Wade's series. One of the better uh, BPMs in the basketball reference model around plus 12, really strong in the back picks model. He led the series in augmented plus minus. He led the series in scoring. He led the series in playmaking value. Only Shaquille O'Neal's efficient post-scoring and cleanup duty kept him from sweeping our cat. We haven't had a sweep yet. In the West, we had a couple Kobe Bryants. We had a couple Steph Currys. We haven't had a sweep yet. Dwayne Wade comes very close here. This, this to me, I hope this is unanimous. How could this not be unanimous? Would, I'm going it, Dwayne Wade. It, it has to be unanimous. It has to be. And I think... I don't necessarily know if this is the best Dwayne Wade, the best version of Dwayne Wade there is, but if you want to go back and see, like we're talking about with peak first step in control of his athleticism, Dwayne Wade, this is probably as peak as this 2006 run. And obviously I think that Maverick series is a lot more famous than this, but he starts ramping it up this series, I think with his, his plus 17 efficiency. <laughs> well, the other thing that that came from that is he was a pretty good to great mid-range shooter at times when he was younger um just like touch and little releases and from 12 feet bank shots things like that and he took 10 mid-range shots per 75 possessions in this series and shot them at 61 percent it was a heater there's no other series he had like this uh around that time so cody i've got some i've got some exciting news for you I've checked in on the Discord results. It is not unanimous. No, Benjamin. Who? Who? Whomst? 
Sha- Shaquille O'Neal. Okay. Shaquille O'Neal is uh, picked up a couple votes. Okay. To prevent Dwayne Wade, they still voted Dwayne Wade. They still voted Good. Dwayne Wade. Okay. But, okay. Yeah, Shaquille O'Neal picked up a couple votes. Now's the time to save thirty percent on wedding jewelry only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. 2007, shall we move on? Yes. Oh, I'm excited about this one. You are excited about this one. The Pistons are back for the fourth consecutive time. Spoiler alert, they're going to make it five times. Uh, They have one more conference finals that we'll discuss. But this one is against a new team, the Cleveland... How do you say this team? The Cleveland Cavaliers? Is it French? Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to be honest. You caught me completely off guard with that one. That's what, from now on, canonically, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, yeah. Um, the Cavs, now this, this is a series where Cleveland was a decent underdog. The Pistons were favored in this series. Of course, they had won a couple in a row in the East. They had home court advantage. And this is the legendary Game 5. But I think even to understand the legendary Game 5, you have to go back and understand the previous couple games the game one in Detroit was 79-76 Pistons. And uh, Cleveland's defensive presence, Zydrunas Ilgoskis at the rim, uh, even, of course, LeBron James, although he wasn't, he wasn't at his peak defensive form yet, Anderson Varejao running around, Larry Hughes engaging and, and being a pest on the perimeter with his hands, Drew Gooden even banging around in the paint. I think... And Mike Brown as the coach, a defensive-oriented coach, I think it was a lot grindier than people had anticipated. 79-76, Pistons hold on in a close game one. Game two, back in the Palace, 79-76, Pistons hold on again. So both of these games felt like much closer, and and maybe Cleveland had a chance to steal one. They go down 2-0. Game three, the Cavs win a close game at home this time. And LeBron has thirty-two, an efficient 32 points and 64% true shooting. Nearly has a triple-double. He's doing it all. They get to game four. It's a very similar thing. Comeback victory in the fourth quarter to win game four by four points. And LeBron in this game had 25, but the efficiency wasn't there. It was, it was a challenge for him. Um, Booby Gibson showed up in this in this game, specifically 21 points. This was kind of the Booby Gibson breakout run and series. Daniel Booby Gibson um, sh- shooting threes, basically playing the Smush Parker role for LeBron. That takes us to game five after four very, very, very close games. And what happens in game five fittingly, Co- Cody? Not only do we have the LeBron game that we all know about, but that game goes into double overtime because these teams are laser locked on each. It's like magnetized toward each other on the scoreboard. Cleveland's able to pull it out. LeBron finishes with 48. What do you have? 25 points in a row. Is that the stat? I think it's 25 straight points. Yeah. 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 Just a transcendent performance dropping in fadeaway jumpers all over the place. And, and so as a result of that, uh, after, after some deep meditation on this issue, 
I think I can confidently say that Daniel Booby Gibson is the Eastern Conference Finals MVP. Well, after completely carrying LeBron in game six, where Gibson drops 31 points on 99% true shooting, like, of course, there's no other option here. Like, the when you, when you talk about latent, latent abilities and latent effects you have on a game, his shooting ability opens up the game to the point where LeBron would just be rendered ineffective if it wasn't for Gibson. I believe the entire... Pistons defensive strategy was centered around how do we stop Booby from getting off and that is what unlocked LeBron you can't convince me otherwise uh in all, in all seriousness <laughs> this is LeBron James comfortably to me by a country mile and and if we go to the discord voting oh my goodness we have it an actual unanimous vote our hey. second unanimous vote for LeBron James yeah, that's that's definitely the right choice. And I think another key difference in this Pistons team now, the season before we lose Flip Saunders, this season, they no longer have Ben Wallace on the team. And I think that's definitely a key change for them, obviously. But then after this, uh, this was a few years after the fact, maybe in 2019, Rasheen Wallace went on the Dan Levitard show, and uh, he, he expressed the fact that after after this series, he was quite unhappy with Flip Saunders. He actually came out and was pretty public saying that some of the actions that they ran he was like, they were they were effective for Kevin Garnett and the Timberwolves when Flip Saunders coached there. But for me, this sort of thing wasn't working. It's really interesting because when you go to the numbers, their offense is just simply better. Rashid was calling him out for not having great X's and O's, and he he was being he was being more polite about it. But it seems like every other piston at least like Chauncey Billups seemed to enjoy Flip Saunders as a coach, but this uh this seemed to be an imploding moment for the Pistons, the post-Ben Wallace, post-Larry Brown Pistons. This, by the way, on our statistical leaderboard, is a sweep. LeBron is best in the box plus-minus models. He's best in the plus-minus models. He leads the series in uh, points per game. He leads the series as the best playmaker, as the best scorer. Clean sweep across the board. LeBron James in 2007. We go to 2008, and it's the Pistons' final run in five consecutive Eastern Conference Finals. This time they go up against the Boston Celtics, and this is a six-game series where the Celtics had not won a road game in the entire playoffs, Cody, until game six in Detroit to close it out in six. They went back and forth in this series with Boston coming away. Um, Very close series. Point differential in the series was about plus one and a half for the Celtics. Game five, huge, huge game. Game five back in Boston. The the Pistons had blown out the Celtics in game four to even the series. Kevin Garnett comes out swinging 33 points in this pivotal game five on 74% true shooting from KG, just knocking stuff down left and right. And then Paul Pierce had a really big game six, or at least down the stretch. I mean, he finished with 27 in this game, only took 12 field goal attempts, 13 free throws, made a couple big shots. The Celtics were actually behind by eight points going into the fourth quarter, steamrolled the Pistons with a 29-13 fourth quarter. Pierce had 12 of his 27 in the fourth to put the Celtics back in the finals. And going back to that that game five, a pivotal game, uh, Kendrick Perkins comes out flaming with eight points in the first seven minutes, ends the half with 12 points and 13 rebounds. Uh, but I think the the thing that really stood out to me, I don't, there's a couple of players in between, but I actually thought this was the most impressive series I saw from Rip Hamilton. I thought his defense looked sharper than it had been before. I thought his passing was peaked. I even thought he was in, 
even better shape. I thought he was out allening Allen, sprinting around the court and all over the place. That was probably the one thing that stood out to me from either side was just what Hamilton was bringing to the table offensively. It's kind of wild to me that we get these Rip Hamilton battles against Reggie Miller, against Ray Allen, um, even against the Heat, although he doesn't really have a counterpart there. But we have these wars and he, when you rewatch him, he kind of looks so good and he holds his own in his matchup, right? Uh, his passing's a little bit better. He led the Pistons in this series again at 22 points per game. Again, I would say it was not a series where Chauncey is really at his best or, or playing his best. Um, for me, you have Rip Hamilton on the Pistons side. You had, I mentioned Pierce and him coming on later in the series. He wasn't great earlier in the series. Finishes the series with 20 points per game on 60%, 61% true shooting, excuse me. Kevin Garnett leads all scorers in the series, 23 points uh, per game, 10 boards, three assists, 58% true shooting. One of those three guys to me was on my radar the whole time. Uh, if we look at our statistical leaderboard, Rip Hamilton at plus seven was the best player according to basketball references box plus minus model. The the back picks model has Kevin Garnett at plus seven. Augmented plus minus has Kevin Garnett uh, at plus six. Pierce is plus five. So he's not too far behind. This was a close one for me between Garnett and Pierce. I end up leaning Kevin Garnett. I just I just think when you incorporate his defense, which some of these metrics don't pick up, uh, he's he's the emotional leader. He's um, kind of spearheading the defense, and for him to have a, a relatively big offensive series as well, I thought that was the difference. Yeah, and we talked about this plenty during the first two parts of this series, but when you have a player that has such mega latent value in some respect, I know I, I, know I kind of made fun of us when it came to Daniel Louie Gibson, but KG, his ability to pass the ball, his defensive ability, his scoring was on point here. I think that's probably the right decision. Uh, well, let's see what the Discord says. The Discord has... Uh, int- this is interesting results, Cody. One vote for Paul Pierce... Every other vote goes to Kevin Garnett. Hey, so they agree. okay. Yeah. I'd love to see that. They agree. So that's Kevin. Kevin Garnett is now on the board as having two uh, Eastern Conference, sorry, two conference finals MVPs. He's got one from each conference. Has anyone else won from each conference? I don't think so. I'm trying to scan through it really quickly. No, I don't believe no. we've awarded one. Um, well, excuse me, LeBron James. He just got it. Yeah, because he had it in 2020 as well, didn't he? Or did I vote Anthony Davis? I thought you gave it to Anthony Davis. I did give it to Anthony Davis. Yeah. yeah. You screwed this up, Ben. I did. Well, or I made it perfect. You're a LeBron hater, Ben. <laughs> how much? How much? To, we're not going to get to part two today, but you might, re, you might rethink that. <laughs> you might rethink that in an hour. Um, speaking of LeBron haters. Or in 30 let's, seconds. Let's, yeah, let's go to 2009. Let's go to 2009. This is kind of another classic series. LeBron explodes into the GOAT discussion with this peak-level MVP season, storming the league, 66 wins for the Cavs, which was a surprise. He's just a physical force, and he's been in the league for years. He already has. The man already has uh, one Larry Bird Eastern Conference Finals trophy from 2007, but you forget he was 22 at the time. And in this season, he's 24, comes out smoking. Um, Eastern Conference Finals, let's just, let's just do some box score 
Cody, would you like to do? Would you like to do the honors and just do some raw box score fawning at this series from LeBron James' stat line? Uh, so in six games in this series, Ben, LeBron averages <laughs> across six games. LeBron averages thirty-eight and a half points, nearly eight and a half rebounds, eight assists on fifty-nine percent true shooting. Yeah. Not too shabby. Good Lord. Um, what's crazy about this series is I'm not sure you can make the argument that it's a landslide vote for LeBron because Dwight Howard, we get peaked Dwight Howard on the other side, and he is not only key in the series, his rim protection, his his um, overloading in the paint on LeBron. <laughs> of course, LeBron still averages 39 a game. We have to talk about that. Actually, there's more to talk about there in a second. Uh, but Dwight Howard finishes with 26 points per game in the series, 13 boards, 69% true shooting from Dwight Howard. He was a monster on the offensive glass. Um this is this feels like when you start it, you're like, oh, it's going to be LeBron. But I don't know if it's a landslide. And and here's what I wanted to come back to. Stan Van Gundy, coach of the Magic, on a great episode of the Low Post with Zach Lowe. If you've never heard of that, check it out. It's on ESPN. Zach Lau? Is he is he the brother of that one actor? Uh, uh, I'm okay. I'm okay. Cody, you killed me with that one. Um, well, anyway... What, what were we talking about? What Stan discusses in this in this wonderful, <laughs> oh my God, um, this wonderful episode is basically the magic strategy was to let LeBron score, quote unquote, let. You don't really let anyone score, but if you're going to pick your poison, you could overload on the player heavily and then force him to playmake. Or you could basically say, if he's going to make the kind of shots he's going to make, or if he's going to, as long as we don't get have a layup line, uh, which the Magic defense did not allow, then we're going to live with what we what we live with. And so to some degree, I think you have to keep in mind that the strategy here was to hold hold LeBron down as a playmaker and be okay with him scoring. With that said, you know, his efficiency isn't off the charts in the series, but he does make a ton of huge shots. Um, the other really interesting wrinkle in this series is that the Magic were white hot from downtown, especially for the era. They were 62 of 152 from three-point land, and I'm no, I'm no math major, but off the top of my head, that's like 41% as a team over six games. On, on pretty decent volume for the error, you know, 20, 25 a game or whatever that comes out to. And the Magic had this huge run at the end of game one to come back and steal it. Game two, they're ahead again. And and Cleveland it hasn't had a championship in decades. The crowd is going into like panic mode. And LeBron hits this insane three-point buzzer beater to, to steal the game back, make it 1-1. And then they go back to Orlando, and and the Magic are just too much in Orlando. Game four, I think, that's the game that went into overtime, right? Do you remember that? Yeah. Game four, game, you said? Yeah, game four went into overtime. Magic were able to hold on. LeBron had a, had a crazy game in that one. Four, 44 points uh, in that one. And then Dwight Howard, especially in game six, back in Orlando at home. His closeout game in game six. Um, do you know this? Do you remember this game? His 40-14 game to close yeah. it out? Yeah, yeah. 40 points, 14 boards, four assists to close it out. So if we go to the leaderboard, Cody, um, 
with all that said, this is literally the second best series on record for conference finals for the for the 42 conference finals we're going to talk about in this series. LeBron James's box plus minus from basketball reference. This is the second best one on record. On our model, his box plus minus is tied for the second best on record. His augmented plus minus in this series is the best augmented plus minus of any series. He does this all as a losing player, led the series in play Val, led the series at 39 points per game. I don't think it's a landslide. I could, I, I can entertain other votes. I'm going LeBron James, 2009 Eastern Finals MVP. I actually feel bad for Dwight Howard in this one because, like you said, he authored a really, really good series to to help knock out LeBron. But man, LeBron is just transcendent here. And this series, like Game One, Magic win by one. Game Two, the game winner, Cavs win by one. Game Four, Magic win by two. Like those were coin flip games that could have gone any other any sort of way here i also love the unmitigated excitement lebron had after hitting that three um i do think like sometimes people can pull off the like i'm really cool stoic game winner celebration but i love like the the reggie miller the michael jordan against the cavaliers lebron in this game when you're just like you don't even know what to do with yourself and you're just kind of like holding your arms out and running around one of the great happy celebrations and um i'm gonna i'm gonna foreshadow this but at some point, I'm going to be talking about LeBron James's most important game of his career, and that has not happened yet. So stay tuned for that. What, is that, what does that mean? What's what's going on here? What you, this this what is you, this is radio, Ben. This is great radio. Tune in and wait for Cody's take on LeBron's most important game of his career. This is a teaser for part two, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Because we have only one more series left here in part one before we 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 take our break. Um, and this series, LeBron is not in. So therefore, I have concluded with deductive logic that it can't be in this series. Yeah. You, if, if there was no other reason to come back, if you're like, wow, I'm, I'm an hour into this and I hate it. Come back for Come back for this. Come back. For Do you this think take. I use inferential logic or deductive logic? When you start using these terms, people will, will come out on the Internet and say, no, that actually is technically incorrect. You, you're, you're a dummy. The um, longer you use words, Ben... Just the more you realize none of them have any meaning. 2010. (laughs) Let's wrap up with this one for part one of this going through the Larry Birds of the East. Fittingly, it is the Boston Celtics, Larry Birds, Boston Celtics uh, versus the Orlando Magic. And the Celtics were a surprise here. They... They were different once Kevin Garnett got injured in 2009. They came back in 2010. We're still talking about the big three iteration with the players we've talked about. Pierce, Ray Allen, the 2001 Larry Bird Trophy winner. Kevin Garnett, the 2008 and 2004 uh, Conference Finals MVP uh, official winner from Thinking Basketball. And they went 25-25 and 25 to close the season in 2010. And then all of a sudden they hit the playoffs and they were just on a completely different plane defensively. They steamrolled the heat. They upset the Cavaliers, which sent the hot take machine into an absolute frenzy. Uh, That was LeBron James's last game in Cleveland, that game six. They come into the series against the Magic. And by that point in the series, let me check the betting odds here. By that point in the series, Orlando was still a significant favorite because I think the Magic... Hadn't the Magic like not lost a playoff game? 
I think they had an 18 or 20 game winning streak or some huge run. They swept both of their first two series. Dwight Howard like didn't even play well or missed a game. They still it doesn't even matter. They were just killing people. They were favored in this series and the Celtics curb stomped them basically, going up 3 nothing to stun them before holding on and winning at six. Yeah, this is a big time game and I think you can see like Kevin Garnett was struggling with injuries at this point. Um, I don't want to say he was a non-factor, but he's definitely not the, the Kevin Garnett that we've known and loved and given given awards to before. And I think this is when Rondo really starts forming into shape, uh, especially in like game six. I think he really comes out firing. He's a really important piece of like getting their offense going, getting into the paint, really strong burst and, and setting people up for some easy, easy shots. He goes down with a back injury for a while in that game. And Nate Robinson comes in and starts torching the magic for a little while. So this, this is a, a, a nice... I don't want to say egalitarian, but the Celtics were kind of really firing on a lot of levels offensively. But uh, it was Paul Pierce when I was watching a lot. I'm like, man, Paul Pierce's shot making is just he's dialed in right now. Yeah, uh, I don't know if 2008 is peak Paul Pierce or 2010, but it's pretty close. And and in 2008, it was the Lakers series that exemplified that. In 2010, I thought it was probably this series that exemplified it. And I I actually hand-tracked this entire series way back when. Ray Allen was doing a lot. You know, it was sort of Pierce and Allen offensively. As you said, Rondo was a much better and bigger part of the team and of the offense. But Pierce led not only, you know, he led the Celtics in shot creation for his teammates as well. He shot 67% in terms of true shooting, led the series at 24 points per game played pretty well defensively. And I think I had a model based on that hand tracking years back, and he had the second best um, sort of uh, results in that model of anyone in the conference finals behind Kobe Bryant, who we gave to. So he was second behind Kobe Bryant, who we gave Western Finals MVP to uh, last time. So to me, this is Paul Pierce, 2010 Eastern Conference Finals MVP. And I think the thing about Dwight Howard that's really tough is there are times his lob threat presents just such an issue, especially for somebody like Kendrick Perkins, who's quite a bit more ground bound. And again, Kevin Garnett, who's a little bit more limited, just there's a couple shots where like Jameer Nelson just kind of throws it above the backboard and Howard just like rises above everyone, grabs the offensive rebound, puts it in Uh, shot blocking on point. But I really think he loses value with his he, he struggles to pass. And he's turnover prone. And I think those are a couple things that hold him back. But defensively and just how much of attention his lob, his his athleticism draws is it's pretty a marvel. I, Prime Dwight was quite the player to watch. You mean you don't think leading this leading your team in scoring over the course of a series and averaging sorry, not averaging uh, amassing four assists over six games. You don't think that's a great indicator of a high level passer? Oh, I didn't look at that, Ben. Did you yeah. say four over six games? Four assists. So so on one hand, Dwight had incredible pressure in this series from the, a number of fouls that he drew, both on and off the ball. Um, but as you said, just not, not a passer. He had 21 turnovers in the six games and four assists. That is not what you want. As the kids say, that is no bueno. <laughs> That's incredible. And I think the best foul that he drew, I think it was in, uh, it might have been that game six. I think it was game six. At one point, um, Dwight's kind of reaching out 
just kind of lightly putting a hand near Kevin Garnett's jersey. And Kevin Garnett slams his hand down. And Dwight puts his arm back and starts staring at the ref like, what's going on here? Kevin Garnett winds up again and just smacks his hand down and is just shocked that he's called for a foul. Probably the best foul of the series. That sounds like an amazing foul. I'm going to need you to send me that clip. Um, If we look at the leaderboard, Paul Pierce, box, box score, Ray Allen just gets him in augmented plus minus, but... Uh, Pierce, a wonderful scoring series. Kevin Garnett, interestingly enough, had the highest net rating in the series of any player at plus seven Celtics were when he was on the floor. I considered Ray Allen here, but uh, Pierce is Pierce is my vote. Yeah, I think that's the right decision. Uh, let's see what the Discord said before we get out of here. Oh, 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 my goodness. Mm, okay. What a place to finish. Cody, we have five different players. <laughs> Five. Okay. Five different players receiving votes in this series. They are Dwight Howard with one, Ray Allen with just one, Rajon Rondo with four, Kevin Garnett with five. You have to figure there's a lot of name brand defensive recognition for that kind of voting. He was still incredibly important defensively. He was still one of the best defensive players in the league, but this is a more limited version. I actually think this 2010 version of Kevin Garnett is more limited than he was in 2011 and 2012. The extra time to heal and recover and come back. He looked much better physically in 2011. I thought he was a better defensive player in 2011. I thought he just had a better uh, overall season in 2011. So you have to figure that's a reputation vote. And then, did I say Rondo? We had Rondo, Garnett, and then the winner, the Discord agrees, Paul Pierce uh, with 13 votes is voted as the winner. Okay, so Pierce ultimately wins out with a pretty solid majority. Pierce wins out. So where does that leave us? We've now gone through 30-something series. We're going to come back, and and we're going to... Cody, you have that incredibly amazing teaser earlier with LeBron James's most important game. We might get to... We might. I don't know if he's going to come back and be in one of these Eastern Conference Finals series. In part, Cody, is part two just going to be called the LeBron James hour? The, just like his team, the LeBron Aliers at one point, I think part two is just going to be, we might have to rename this the LeBron James Trophy. Uh, we, we, we'll we see. We'll see when we cross that road. Um, as of now, Jason Kidd wins two. Let, let me just go back and, and recap it. Reggie Miller, 2000. Uh, Ray Allen, 2001. The Discord disagrees. They go with Allen Iverson. Jason Kidd, 2002. Jason Kidd again for the second time in 2003. Uh, I go Rip Hamilton, 2004. The Discord goes Ben Wallace. I have no problem with that. 2005, we have a tie in the Discord between Rashid and Rip Hamilton. I go Dwayne Wade. I could see Rip. I, I don't I don't know about the, the Sheed votes. Uh, 2006, we all agree it's Dwayne Wade. 2007, LeBron James. 2008, Kevin Garnett. 2009, LeBron James. And 2010, Paul Pierce, those are your Larry Bird Eastern Conference Finals officially unofficial thinking basketball MVP winners. I think you might have to restructure that. I think the name has to be something like the official thinking basketball presents the Larry Bird Trophy for Eastern Conference Finals MVP awards. I like that. It's kind of like the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. 
exactly. Uh, if you want to check out more of our content or just directly support this crazy podcast and all things Thinking Basketball, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball is the place to go. Uh, we just did our monthly live Q&A where we get incredible questions and topics to discuss that are very important, like Bobby Jones being transported into the future to play on the 2015 Golden State Warriors, among many other things. Patreon.com slash Thinking Basketball. All the stats and series stats that we talk about in this episode are available to subscribers over there. That is it for me and Cody. Thanks, as always, for listening all the way to the end. And of course, I hope you are having a great day.